0: You're sitting in the passenger seat of your car, staring out the window. Your boyfriend is driving and you look over at him. You can tell that he's getting tired. It's been a long day. You left Louisiana five hours ago and he's been driving the entire time. You're going to Houston where he has an interview for a job on an oil rig. You find the monotony of the drive to be somewhat calming. It's a big difference from your usual day-to-day of running around, doing your job, and taking care of your teenage son who has special needs. Of course, you love your kids and your job is great, but for the first time in a while, you feel yourself really relaxing and you're happy to have nothing to do or worry about for the next couple of days. When you finally get to the motel in Houston, you're both exhausted. You dump your suitcases at the foot of the bed and you're tempted to skip dinner and just stay in for the rest of the night. But you don't want your boyfriend to go to bed on an empty stomach. So you both get back in the car, grab some hamburgers from a fast food drive through and then start heading straight back to the motel. Your boyfriend rubs his eyes when he changes lanes and out of nowhere, you see blue and red lights flashing behind your car and a siren blaring. You look up and watch in the rearview mirror as a police officer slowly walks up to the driver's side window. License and registration. You rummage in the glove compartment for the registration. Well, what's the problem, officer? Your boyfriend asks. No signal while changing lanes. You hand the registration to your boyfriend who, in turn, hands it to the officer. License, the officer says again. Your boyfriend holds tight onto the steering wheel. I I don't, uh, I don't have a license. Sir, please step out of the vehicle. Your boyfriend gets out, closing the door behind him. The officer sticks his head into the car window and looks around. He never makes eye contact with you. Then the officer steps away from your car and calls out to his partner who's sitting in the police car. There's a needle in here, the officer says. Excuse me, what are you talking about? You have no idea what the officer thinks he saw, but you certainly did not have any kind of needle in your car. The cop ignores your question and walks over to the passenger window. Ma'am, I'm going to need your consent to search the car, and I'll tell you right now, you don't consent. We're going to be sitting here a long time until we can get a canine out here to sweep the car. You don't have anything to hide, so you say, Yeah, okay, go ahead. You stand on the side of the road with your boyfriend in the thick Texas heat while both officers search the car. A few minutes later, the first officer stands up straight. It looks like he's pinching something between his index finger and his thumb and he's holding it up to the moonlight you can't see what it is but you see that the officer says something to his partner who then comes over to you uh, man, we have reason to believe that there's crack cocaine in your car the officer says he tells you both to put your hands behind your back he starts cuffing your boyfriend and your adrenaline starts pumping You're sweating now and you can't tell if it's the 90 degree heat or if it's pure nerves and anxiety as the officer tightens the cuffs painfully around your wrist. You have the wrong idea here. I I don't have drugs in my car. I don't do drugs. I've never done drugs. One officer walks over to you and then takes you to the police car. The other one opens up the trunk. He takes out something that looks like a Ziploc baggie then walks back over to you. He opens the bag and pulls out a test tube. Then he takes what he's been pinching between his fingers and drops it into the tube. He shakes it around, looks at it. Then he looks at you and a wide grin creeps across his face. He waves the tube right in front of your nose A liquid that seems to change from red to blue in the flashing lights is dangled in front of you. You're busted, ma'am, the cop says. The cops take you to jail. Your boyfriend is charged with driving without a license and is released soon after. But you don't know that yet because you're placed in a tiny holding cell with one other woman who tells you that she murdered someone. You're feeling sick and you still haven't eaten all day. You're terrified, but you're not just worried about yourself. You're really worried about your son. Someone calls your name from a thick plastic window that separates you from the people working at the jail. You walk up to the window and see a tired looking man on the other side. He introduces himself as the court appointed defense attorney. He tells you, You're being charged for possession of crack cocaine. Look, this is a felony, he says, and you're facing two years in state prison. You're in disbelief. Jesus, how how is this possible? The attorney looks down at his papers and says, look, you have a choice. It's not much of a choice, but you do have a choice. The prosecutor is offering you a plea deal. If you plead guilty, You'll get a 45-day sentence in jail, and you'll probably only have to serve half of that. You say, I'm innocent. I'm not going to plead guilty to something I didn't do. The defense attorney kind of leans in a little bit and looks at you through his wire-rimmed glasses and says, Ma'am, they tested the substance they found on the floor of your car, and it came up positive for crack cocaine, so... According to this test, there was crack in your car. Now, you can wait until the forensics lab runs another test on it, but there's a huge backlog. You could wait months for that test to come back. You begin to physically shake. You're on the verge of bursting out in tears right there in the middle of the jail. You think about your options. Months in jail waiting for the evidence that will prove you're innocent two years in prison if it doesn't and can you even trust the test if the one that they did on the side of the road was clearly wrong i mean there was no crack in your car you think about your youngest son and you're terrified of what's going to happen if you can't get out of here fast he really needs you you work managing an apartment complex part of your compensation is that you get to live in an apartment in the building that you manage It at least allows you to stay close to your son at all times. Right now he's with his dad, but if you're stuck here for months or God forbid years, you'll lose your job, your home, the safety net for you and your kid. The decision is basically made for you. You can't sit in prison for months. You have to get out and get out as quickly as you can. The next thing you know, you're standing in front of a judge. You can't stop trembling. You're weeping uncontrollably. You can barely breathe. Somehow, when the judge asks you, how do you plead, you force out the words, I plead guilty. They take you back to a cell where you'll serve 21 days of the 45-day sentence you were given. The prosecutor files a motion for the evidence in your case to be destroyed. After 21 days you're let out of jail Your worst fears have been realized You've been fired You've been kicked out of your apartment You don't know where most of your belongings are And you don't know where to turn The story you just heard is based on the true events of Amy Albritton's wrongful conviction That resulted from a roadside drug test Somehow The prosecutor's order to destroy the evidence never got signed off on. And that substance they found in her car that they claimed tested positive for crack cocaine, it turned out to be a food crumb. Based on the junk science of roadside drug testing, the steady life that Amy built for herself and her family was completely turned upside down. And Amy isn't the only one. I'm Josh Dubin, civil rights and criminal defense attorney and innocence ambassador to the Innocence Project in New York. Today on Wrongful Conviction Junk Science, we explore roadside drug testing. Turns out these faulty tests, which cost police departments $2 a piece or less, are widely used across the United States. They cause countless people to plead guilty to crimes they didn't commit. These tests continue to be used despite scientific evidence that proves just how ineffective they are. In 1973, during the height of the war on drugs in the United States, a chemist by the name of L.J. Scott Jr. was tasked with creating a test that could confirm the presence of cocaine. Now, Scott was already aware of one chemical that was being used to test for cocaine, but the problem was it was highly unreliable. This faulty test was made up of a pink liquid a chemical called cobalt thiocyanate. When cocaine was added to this pink liquid, it turned blue. And so the thinking went, whenever the pink liquid turns blue, we can know if there is cocaine present. But the problem was that it wasn't only cocaine, but plenty of other substances that could also turn this pink chemical blue. So Scott set out to work on creating a more accurate test He experimented with other chemicals, and finally, he came up with a three-step test. Here's how it worked. A small sealable bag contained three vials of chemicals. First, the substance suspected to be cocaine was added to the first vial that contained the same pink chemical as the original test, cobalt thiocyanate. If that turned blue, it meant the substance might be cocaine Then the vial was placed into the small bag with the other two vials. The first vial was broken open. So the liquid contents would leave the vial and sit at the bottom of the transparent bag. Then the second vial would be broken open. This vial contained a second chemical hydrochloric acid that was supposed to mix with the first chemical and turn the substance pink again. Then, the third vial would be broken. This final vial was filled with chloroform. If the liquid mixture at the bottom of the bag split into two layers so that a pink liquid floated to the top and blue sank to the bottom, Scott said this confirmed that the substance being tested was indeed cocaine. After working on the test for nine months, Scott was so sure of it that he declared, the method proposed herein is almost impossible to misinterpret. It is highly sensitive and specific. Officers started carrying these portable roadside drug tests on them while they patrolled neighborhoods and pulled people over for traffic violations. They started using the tests on people suspected of possessing drugs and the arrests started flooding in. But this test turned out to be not quite as foolproof as Scott thought. A study by toxicologists found that the three vial tests would also show positive results for substances other than cocaine. Lidocaine, for example, a common numbing agent found in many first aid kits used to soothe cuts and burns also tested positive. Nevertheless, Scott started his own company that sold drug test kits to law enforcement. This company still exists today. And interestingly enough, he stopped selling the kits with the three vial process. Instead, he went back to the one step process, the test with just the pink liquid that was already known to be faulty and to test positive for so many other substances. He did this so that he could sell them for less money and they were a hit. And he expanded beyond cocaine tests. His company also sells tests for opiates MDMA, marijuana, LSD, bath salts, and methamphetamine. His website boasts that the tests come in easy to use, cheap packaging that prevents officers from cutting their fingers while breaking the vials. When interviewed by reporters from ProPublica, Scott said that he had no idea that these tests alone could send people to prison, but indeed they were. Countless innocent people including Amy Albright, ended up convicted based on cheap, highly flawed roadside tests just like these.
4: Now, the problem with the drug kit is that these things are incredibly unreliable. And so they come up positive for things like chocolate, like cleaning supplies, like aspirin, like sugar, weight gain powder, candle wax, drywall, soap, Sand. They all come back and test positive for narcotics because these things are very unreliable. And they're not supposed to be used specifically for actually getting a conviction. But many people plea in the system, never get to a trial. And these are used as the only evidence to actually obtain a conviction. That's what happened in Amy's case.
0: On our show today, we're talking to Greg Glott. Greg is a policy fellow at Americans for Prosperity. Now, Americans for Prosperity is a grassroots organization that educates citizens about policy issues at the local, state, and national level. And one of the issues that Greg works on is criminal justice reform. So I want to go into detail about these drug testing kits. Walk us through some of the issues associated with these tests. It sounds like there are quite a few of them.
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, so... There are a variety of issues that go along with drug test kits. And there's so many areas in that chain of sequence from, you know, finding the substance to actually testing it that can go wrong. And so first and foremost is actually training. And so it seems very easy. You drop something in a vial and you test it and see if it turns a different color. And if it does, then it's supposed to be drugs. But it's not that simple. Um, and so officers have to be trained accordingly on how these work. And the problem is a lot of different substances actually change the color. And so the way that the thought process is supposed to go about this is if it's not a drug, the substance shouldn't change in there. However, a lot of substances actually make that color go different. And so you have these situations where officers aren't properly trained on how to use them. They break the different vials in the wrong way. It could be cold outside. The temperature changes different things. Um, The chemicals might be expired within them. There's a lot of different ways that this can go wrong. But even if you do everything correctly, everything right, the officer has been properly trained and he's one of the best, you know, at actually utilizing this. He was a former chemist. Let's just say the the most, you know, crazy scenario where he knew exactly how to do this. There are so many different non-controlled substances that actually test positive for drugs and change that substance that look like narcotics that it makes it impossible to really verify if this is a drug or not.
0: And let's be honest, most of these officers are not scientists or, or chemists, and there are many other problems, including that these tests just aren't that easy to read. One color can easily be interpreted as another. So what are some examples
4: of this? For example, one test, it says that LSD should turn olive black, but sugar turns dark brown. Now, if you're on the side of the road pulling someone over at night, there's lights flashing things are going on, it's noisy, it's hot, you're in You're in South Texas, you're shaking this thing around and you're looking at it and you're saying, is that dark brown or is that olive black? I mean, you, you, it's, it's a pretty ridiculous question, but this can mean the difference between someone being arrested or being let go uh, free because of this slight color change. And then another test, another very popular test, cocaine is supposed to be a deep orange yellow while salt is a strong orange. If you can explain to me what a strong orange is compared to a deep orange yellow, um, please let me know.
2: In line at the deli, I guess? Uh Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually.
3: Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting.
2: Really?
4: Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
2: I never win and tell.
1: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by Icon. Supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's full regimen, which contains all five of her best selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology.
0: So I'm thinking of someone like Amy, who we talked about at the beginning of this episode and whose story was actually published in an article by ProPublica. And by the way, if you're interested, you can find this article and others about these roadside drug tests in our show notes. But someone like Amy is taken to jail based on this flawed roadside test and she's told by her court appointed defense attorney that there's another test that can verify the results of course that test is going to take quite some time but she's told that nonetheless so tell us about that second test the lab test is it actually reliable and and if it is reliable why aren't they using it to verify the results right away instead of having you know people like amy be presented with this very precarious um circumstance in which they're made to wait around for
4: a while. With all these drug test kits, you know, and it says it right on the box, they, they should be verified by a forensics lab. And so um, most jurisdictions either have a state lab and then also for larger cities, they'll have their own lab. So essentially what they do is take the substance, heat it up a lot, break it down to its elements. And then you can tell from that uh, with you know pretty much one hundred percent certainty that what it is is either narcotics or not. However, most of the time it's not getting to that point. A lot of places um, you know, in, in Texas, the Department of Public and Safety there just doesn't have the time and bandwidth to actually verify a lot of these, these cases. Some jurisdiction now, Houston, after this story kind of broke, is now not allowing for plea deals to be accepted without that verification. But in a lot of jurisdictions, particularly in small jurisdictions where you have these major backlogs, people are playing within a couple of days and then these things aren't being verified back. Every case can't get tested with the amount and volume that we have. There's 1.6 million arrests for drug offenses each and every year. And if you try to verify and test all these substances, you never get through it. And so those are the problems. So the actual test, the actual science um, that should be used here is not being utilized because the criminal process stops within a couple of days for most of these individuals. And then the plea happens.
0: So let's pause there for a second. Tell us about the plea. Why do so many innocent people end up pleading guilty once they're charged based on these faulty roadside drug tests?
4: So a plea deal is a negotiation. And so what it is, is, hey, I can give you 10 years on this or you can take two today. Instead of going to trial, let's settle this today. And so that is very attractive for a lot of people that are facing so much time. And it really does get to a point where it's quite coercive. Uh, Maybe they set your bail at $5,000, $10,000. You can't afford it. So you sit in jail and you're claiming your innocence. You're claiming your innocence. Now the prosecutor delays your case again, delays your case again. We'll accept a 45 day deal or we can go to trial and maybe you'll get two years. And you have an overworked public defender who has a huge backlog of cases on their own and can't give you the time of day because you can't afford your own attorney. And so they're telling you, take the plea. You have no chance, go through this and you're still sitting in jail and sitting in jail and jail's not a great place and jail it's hot or it's freezing cold and you're with other people that are actually you know dangerous criminals in, in this place and you're going through it and you start to think of this cost benefit analysis of do i stay in here take this and go or do i continue to fight this case of potentially risk you know multiple years or staying in here for another 6 eight months. You know, the public defender is telling you the backlog at the, the lab is 12 to 18 months. You know, you can't get out for quite a while. You know, these are the types of fears and risks and things people are going through in this process. And so that's why folks like Amy and thousands of others across the country have accepted plea deals even when they're actually innocent.
0: Yeah. And what's really tragic is that once these innocent people plead guilty, whatever was used to convict them, You know, whatever was taken from their car and dropped in one of these vials that the police are saying tested positive for a certain drug um, usually gets destroyed. So if they ever want to get a hold of the evidence to try to demonstrate that they actually pled guilty to something they didn't do, they can't get it.
4: You're exactly right. You know, evidence in a lot of these cases has been destroyed. And so we really don't know how many people have been wrongfully convicted because you may not be able to verify the results. I know ProPublica uh, did a study and they, they estimate about 100,000 people a year probably plead guilty based upon drug test kits alone. And so even if you have a small error rate there, I mean, you're talking about thousands of people potentially each year that actually had never done anything wrong, pleading guilty. And how many of those cases do you actually have the destruction of evidence? Luckily for Amy, and it's tough to say anything's lucky about her her case, was that you know in, in Harris County, you had a forensics lab that didn't want to destroy evidence. And you also had so much volume that a motion to destroy evidence is that at the bottom of the barrel for a judge to sign. So that motion was never signed in her case. And so six months later, this was actually tested, and it was a food crumb.
0: So because of what was really an oversight, the evidence in her case was never destroyed. So they were able to retest the evidence and find out that she's actually innocent. And they sent a letter to Amy's house notifying her, but it took a long time to actually get that letter. So Amy went a long time not knowing that this evidence had ever been retested.
4: Now, the problem with that and the problem in Amy's case is that she had moved from her original address at that time. And so for a lot of folks, I mean, this has been going on for years. They can't find everyone. And so these criminal convictions continue to linger. Some of these individuals were homeless. Some of these are in extreme poverty. Some have moved out far away and don't understand that this is going on. And so a lot of these cases are still unresolved to this day. And that's exactly what happened in Amy's case. I think her initial letter was sent in 2014. It took until, you know, Two reporters from The New York Times to finally get in touch with her um, and finally found her, you know, six years later after this happened. She had already had the criminal conviction on her record. Um, she had lost everything. She was working at like a convenience store and then kind of working for a slumlord after that because she couldn't get a job with a felony record. And so this entire woman's life is, is ruined based upon the evidence of this drug kick.
0: Look, I know exactly what you're talking about. I have so many clients that when they get out, you know, there's always you know a celebration, um, and oftentimes it's covered in the press. And um, after that first, you know, 24, 48, 72 hours, um, you know, a different kind of nightmare begins for them. You know, trying to assimilate back into society is just, you know very, very difficult. The psychological harm that is done, you know, from somebody being in a confined space and um, having to answer to someone, having to ask permission to do something, you know, simple things like go to the bathroom or eat. It's just, it's hard to undo. And, um, you know, this stain of a wrongful uh, incarceration, a wrongful conviction really
4: sticks with you you know, the internet, things don't leave there. And so you have this arrest record on there. You have these convictions on there and those linger with you for quite a while. It costs thousands of dollars to get your case expunged, even if you're wrongfully convicted. And even if you get that off your physical record, the digital record still stays there. You have a mugshot that's out there. You have this arrest record. You have the plea. You have all these different documents and they can be scrubbed from one thing, but they can pop up on another. You'll have the same company Uh, have something called mugshots.com. And then they'll have mugshots with a Z.com. And then you have to pay to get it off of there. And so, you know, I'm sure if you looked up Amy Albritton and and criminal history on a lot of these different sites, you'd probably still see that she was arrested, charged and convicted for uh, drug possession. And if you're trying to get a job, you're trying to get public funding, public housing, apply to school, all these different things that's going to pop up. And sometimes an employer or a college or something else will just brush past you because of that, even though you were actually exonerated of a crime.
0: So if these tests are so problematic, why is law enforcement still using them? Why are they so so popular?
4: Well, they're incredibly popular. And, and the reason that they're so popular is because they're cheap and they allow, and I'm using this term loosely, for officers and prosecutors to gather some sort of chemical evidence early on in the trial and keep that churn of the criminal justice system going. We had 1.6 million arrests for drug offenses in 2018. If everyone went to trial on those things, you'd, you'd never get through it. It would take decades to get through all the cases. And so what a field drug test kit does is allow us to expedite the criminal justice system and garner pleas from individuals at the earliest stage in the process.
0: So do you think there's anything that can prevent these roadside drug tests from resulting in innocent people getting convicted?
4: Because of investigative stories like we had in Atlanta, uh, there was an incredible one down there where they found that 145 people just in 2017 alone were wrongfully convicted of drug possession. And the ones in Houston, and we had, you know, certain cases in, in Arizona and Las Vegas These investigative reports and these types of podcasts that you guys are doing has brought more information on the inaccuracies of these. And actually, in Harris County, they no longer allow for a plea to be entered until it has been verified by a laboratory. And so um, you are seeing changes across the country on how these are utilized. But still, in many jurisdictions, particularly smaller jurisdictions, judges are taking these pleas and prosecutors are driving these pleas without actually verifying the results.
0: These types of stories are extremely valuable, but the sad truth is that these kinds of changes take a lot of work and a lot of time. So in the meantime, um, for the immediate future, is there anything else that can be done to stop these kinds of wrongful convictions?
4: If you're about to accept a plea based upon this alone, do not. Now you do have newer technologies today that actually are able to be more readily accurate and don't produce as many false positives but those are very expensive and a lot of you know smaller jurisdictions can't afford those and so that's a good thing but that's going to be you know a long ways out and so you know these drug test kits are still very prevalent so they just should not be used in the first place.
0: It's likely that stories like Amy's would have remained cloaked in silence had it not been for journalists from ProPublica and the New York Times, who did extensive reporting to understand the depth of the problems that are associated with roadside drug test kits. In fact, Amy likely wouldn't have learned about the retesting of the evidence in her case, which verified what she already knew, that she was innocent, if these reporters hadn't tracked her down. It's because of these investigative journalists that the problems associated with drug test kits came to light. And it's in large part due to their reporting that local municipalities across the country are being pressured to change their regulations regarding roadside drug tests. Oversight is being implemented to ensure that the work of crime labs is reliable. There's increased scrutiny of plea deals for drug offenses where there isn't evidence to support a person's guilt. This kind of reporting is extraordinarily important for helping the Innocence Project and lawyers like me identify cases where individuals were wrongfully convicted and to bring these cases to the public's attention. So subscribe to news outlets like ProPublica, The Marshall Project, The New York Times, or wherever you see quality journalism that is focused on exposing the shortcomings of our criminal justice system. We hear this phrase, fake news, fake news, it's all fake news, carelessly tossed around to the point where people are actually beginning to believe that they should be dismissive of anything written by a journalist. This is so dangerous for reasons that I think are obvious to listeners of this show. This assault on our media makes supporting credible news organizations more important than ever as it is often under the microscope of their thorough investigative reporting that we uncover and then prevent the junk science behind wrongful convictions. Next week, we'll explore the junk science of eyewitness identification with renowned psychologist and memory expert Elizabeth Loftus. Wrongful Conviction Junk Science is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company No. 1. Thanks to our executive producer, Jason Flom, and the team at Signal Company No. 1, executive producer, Kevin Wardis and senior producers, Kara Kornhaber and Britt Spangler. Our music was composed by Jay Ralph. You can follow me on Instagram at dubin.josh. Follow the Wrongful Conviction Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction.